Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, and Eric, when we're done here, I'm going to be putting up a fence in my backyard, which I'm disproportionately excited about. But um, <laughs> I fortunately won't be doing it alone because it's a bit of a bit of a undertaking doing that. I've got a couple of friends helping me, including my friend Patrick, who's a landscaper here in town. Um, and he's also a singer-songwriter. He performs gigs in the region. But he's also a drummer. And I learned from watching a new documentary the other night that he was a drummer for a band that came oh, so close to making it. Um, they called themselves from Good Homes. And in the 90s, they were performing on the same bill as the likes of like, the Dave Matthews Band, Blues Traveler. Mm. Everyone thought they were going to just blow up. They, they had a record deal with RCA. They released two albums, but then they just never had that bit of luck, right? They never had that catchy single, that certain mm. something. And so RCA dropped them. And then when RCA dropped them, they kind of looked around at each other and they thought, oh, we can't be bothered to go through this again. And they just stopped. Hmm. And they went off and they did their own thing. And my friend Patrick wound up here in Vermont building patios and living the good life. And anyway, this was all really interesting to watch this documentary the other night. And it got me to thinking... When will the documentary about us be coming out? And and when it does, what do you think we'll actually be doing with our lives? Mm, that's a that's an interesting question. For, mm. First of all, uh, I'll, I'll say that documentaries about bands are almost a can't miss. As yeah. long as there's some infighting or some rock and roll excess or, or a smash hit that took <laughs> you to the top for a brief moment, it is going to be a great watch even if the music was never all that good. <laughs> Motley Crue. <laughs> um, now... I've yet to see a documentary about a podcast or a podcaster, uh, but I, I feel like the can't miss factor there is considerably lower. Um, <laughs> you could probably mine a little drama out of me breaking into a sweat when Zoom freezes in the middle of a big interview or something. Right. But basically, the documentary on us is only any good if one of us goes on a murder spree. Then it's right. kind of interesting to, to pour over the old podcast audio looking for clues. And actually, getting a little meta, I suppose, this moment right now is definitely getting into the documentary if indeed one of us starts piling bodies in our basement. Um, look, I suppose when the time comes for one of us to get into the International Boxing Hall of Fame, someone could put together a nice five-minute video vignette on our roles as boxing podcast pioneers. Not a whole documentary. There's just no chance. But a quick little thing when we're old that shows a few photos of us on Radio Row when we were less old, that's about the best we can hope for, I think. Mm. Mm. It could be like just an entire documentary of, what about now? How, how, how do I sound now? Is it better now? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, those uh, those moments are really powerful as they're unfolding. And I can just imagine that looking back on them 30 years later, they'll be even that much more resonant. Yeah, I see. I was kind of picturing like the situation would be that would be the search. The podcast would suddenly end and there'd be the search for me because I'd have gone off to live in some remote wilderness cabin having grown a lengthy beard or something like that I was I'd be hanging out with a bear or something you know mm -hmm. going all Grizzly Adams but the you wouldn't be doing the searching you would have basically forgotten who I was uh, most likely uh, yeah I would, I, I would have simply replaced you with somebody else and moved right on yeah right exactly it would be it would be one of our sad listeners who who would suddenly be like whatever happened to that guy <laughs> and I'll just be like who 
Who? No, he was he was never on a podcast with me. I mean, you're already in kind of a remote cabin. Oh, I mean, yes, it wasn't a real stretch. It was (laughs) basically like, what do I want to be doing in five years? And it's living off the grid with a bear. So I just extrapolated that. Well, not (laughs) living with the bear, but, you know. Okay. For for the record, I'd watch it. The the documentary about you and your post-podcast life with a bear. Count count me as one of the viewers. And all you've got to do is just, honestly, it could just be just cuts of all these opening banter segments that we do that's just hilarity as it could be a comedy and you know people would laugh and go how we miss that they'd say <laughs> i the one thing the listeners can agree on right now is putting the word cuts with opening banter <laughs> how's that yes good transition yeah, for you sure. yes very good all right let's move on um it is as you can probably already tell from our vamping another one of those summer calm before the storm weeks uh, before the showtime boxing schedule picks back up again uh, but we do have a great interview guest to help us get through it uh, we'll welcome for the first time our friend greg bishop he's a writer for sports illustrated and before that the new york times uh, and he's also part of the showtime family in his role as writer for the all access series we'll also have eric's countdown of his top five most egregious premature stoppages uh, we'll cover the latest news. I'll award the tweet of the week, and we'll preview the ring return of Tiafimo Lopez. But we start with a recap of a light weekend of fights, and the fight that got the most attention was the main event of a disown card in Fort Worth, Texas. A welterweight contender, Virgil Ortiz Jr., remained perfect, 19-0 with 19 KOs, overcoming a game challenge from Michael McKinson by dropping the Brit with a left to the body in round eight and finishing it 27 seconds into round nine when McKinson went down again. Struggling with an apparent leg injury, his corner threw in the towel. Uh, it was McKinson's first loss. He's now 22-1 and one with two KOs. Uh, but the focus is all on Ortiz. He wasted little time getting back in the winning groove after a career longest 12 month layoff. Eric, did you learn anything about Ortiz from this fight? Uh, Terence Crawford also was ringside. Um, we know he has other business on his mind right now, as Virgil uh, himself alluded to afterwards. But uh, how close to ready for a fight like that is Ortiz at this point? So the first question, did we learn anything about Ortiz? Sort of. I mean, this fight wasn't a waste of his time, but it wasn't a test of any sort really either. Um, he got through various small adversities, uh, a cut near the eyelid suffered from a head clash in the first round, having to cope with a mobile Southpaw with a good jab. The big thing we learned, and we already knew this, but it was emphasized here is that Ortiz is an elite body puncher. That was the difference between what would have been a comfortable decision win that ends his KO streak and, and leaves people with mixed reviews and what we got knockout number 19 and pretty much positive reviews across the board. These were useful rounds for Virgil Ortiz. Another step in his progression, good experience against a style that could have made him look bad, but ultimately I thought he looked just fine because he's that good. Uh, He really seems to have it all and just has the misfortune of being the same age in the same division as Boots Ennis. So (laughs) people aren't calling Virgil Ortiz the future of boxing. Maybe that's not misfortune. Maybe that's a good thing that there's a tiny bit less pressure on him because of Boots Ennis. Mm. Anyway, how close to ready for the elite is Ortiz, you asked? Um, I would say he's ready and could acquit himself just fine against a Crawford or a Spence. Obviously, he's an underdog against those guys, the same way Teofimo Lopez was an underdog against Lomachenko. But that was mostly because we hadn't seen it from him yet, but we knew he had a shot at winning. I think Ortiz Mm. is kind of like that. He's reasonably ready but 
it works out well for him, I think, that Crawford and Spence have each other right now, because Ortiz has a much better chance against those guys a year or so from now. Um, But here's how good I would say he is right now. I'd certainly favor him over Keith Thurman, who Mm -hmm. is the next best veteran in the division behind Spence and Crawford. And that, to me, that's really the perfect fight for Ortiz, if it can be made. That's the one that... If he wins, it sets him up perfectly as having proven he's ready for the Spence Crawford winner. And meanwhile, poor Boots Ennis will sit on the sidelines waiting for someone, anyone to fight him. Uh, I, I expect that Ortiz will get the big opportunities before Boots does. Yeah, I thought um, Ortiz looked just a smidgen rusty for the first couple of rounds. Like he was having to remind his muscles what to do and how mm. to behave. And and then I thought in the third round, it just felt as if his muscle memory just came back. And he wasn't having to think about what he was doing and and the punches just flowed and, and he looked good. I, in many ways, I thought this was a perfect comeback fight, right? He was against a guy who was in no danger of being hurt by a guy with two KOs. And so he could sort of get into his groove and do what he wanted. Um, but even though McKinsey is not a world beater, he is a solid pro, as he showed. He, got, mm-hmm. he had really good defensive skills. He made Ortiz work. But, you know, uh, at the same time, he, he wasn't able to last the distance. It, it, honestly, it couldn't really have been much better like you said Ortiz had to overcome a little bit of adversity all these things are great after a little bit of time out not having been in the ring very much uh to remind yourself of what to do remind yourself you can overcome a little bit of adversity after that layoff that he had I would wouldn't mind seeing Ortiz come back against another someone slightly better than McKinson just to get the more rounds in and get that uh, muscle memory going again by the end of the year, and then mm-hmm. next year step it up a bit. I, I, I agree with you. Thurman's great mm-hmm. uh, as an opponent, and I too would favor him. And we hope that Thurman is looking for a dance partner because that means probably the Crawford and Spence are, <laughs> right. are, are facing each other. Um, and uh, yeah, and then after that, probably you know really step it up and begin to make his push. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of noteworthy results on the undercard in Fort Worth. Uh, welterweight Blair the Flair Cobbs dropped Maurice Hooker three times in the first two rounds and scored a minor upset by wide unanimous decision. And women's flyweight titleist Marlon Esparza won a 10-round unanimous decision over her own surprisingly frisky challenger, Ava Guzman. Uh, any quick thoughts on either of those? Sure. Uh, first, Cobbs Hooker. Uh, I know a lot of people wanted to make this about what's wrong with Mo Hooker. He doesn't look like he's into this fight. And, and- that was a fair observation. His manager recently died, as we discussed. He, he'd been off for 18 months. He was distracted, didn't make weight. This was not the best possible Maurice Hooker. But I think it's important here to shine a spotlight on Cobbs. This was easily the best win of his career. New trainer. He was more explosive early on than I've seen him before. His left hand was doing damage. And when Hooker started to get going and land some right hands, Cobbs took it all and kept coming. He had a badly swollen eye and a bad cut and... Maybe he was running a little more than you'd like down the stretch, but he nevertheless fought a better, more consistent, more mature fight than I knew he was capable of. Um, Esparza Guzman, I have two comments. First, they did not look like they were in the same weight class. There was like a John Ruiz versus Roy Jones level size disparity, Mm. I thought, between the two. Guzman must have weighed in with rolls of quarters in her pockets. She looked like a straw weight, not a flyweight. Um, The other thing is, those scorecards stunk, and I really want to see Guzman again. I thought she fought really well. The Texas judges had it 98-92, 98-92, and 99-91 in favor of the Texas fighter. I had it 96-94. This was a close fight. To me, anything less than three rounds to Guzman is disrespectful. She threw really sharp, quick punches, boxed well throughout, on her toes, lots of energy, great technique. 
that was the other thing. This was a reminder, technique-wise, uh, of how far women's boxing has come. Mm. You know, there was no real difference in skill level between Sparza and Guzman and all the world-class male fighters on this card. Um, but anyway, I have nothing against Sparza, no problem with her winning. But those scores sucked, in my view. Mm. Almost worthy of a Pauli Malignaggi rant about not getting a fair <laughs> shake in Texas. <laughs> um, earlier in the day, in Belfast on ESPN+, Plus, Michael Conlon bounced back from suffering his first loss as a pro, a 12th-round knockout by Lee Wood in a Fight of the Year candidate in March, to score three knockdowns of veteran Miguel Mariaga en route to a unanimous 10-round decision. Scores were 99-88 twice and 99-89. Kieran, did he look as if he's put the wood KO behind him? And can he position himself for another title shot? He sort of looked as if he's put the wood KO behind him. I mean, he boxed very well indeed for the great majority of the fight. He has made a decision to move very much to a boxer. I was going to say boxer puncher, but really boxer rather mm. than than, than a, a, somebody who's going to step in there and trade. And he was showing signs of that early on against wood, I thought. But he really, you know, that really came out. Uh, on uh, Saturday, uh, I thought his defense was very good. His footwork was good. He was using this very wide stance. He had his lead leg was very far out in front of him, which gave him a solid base for the kind of work he was trying to do. It's not very good if you're going to be a power puncher, but um, for the kind of work that he was trying to do, it worked. And I think it put off Mariaga somewhat, because I think he had difficulty uh, for Mariaga to close the distance as a consequence. Um, altogether, Mariaga touched the con- canvas, I think, five times in total. Two of them were called slips. And honestly... Two of the three called knockdowns were dubious too, actually. There just didn't seem to be a lot of traction on that ring mat. Um, Mariaga was disappointing. He did very little, a consequence for the first nine rounds. And then suddenly in the final round, he attacked Conlon's body. And honestly, Conlon looked a little ragged when he did so. I mean, not yeah. hurt particularly, but maybe a little anxious. Um, and, and having been stopped in the last round, as he mentioned against Wood, he admitted afterward that he'd had to go through a bit of a gut check in the final round there. And... I don't know if that's going to prove to be an issue going forward, whether it's a stamina issue or a psychological issue, or if now that he's made it through that against Mariaga, he's got that monkey off his back. But by and large, I thought this was an impressive win against a foe who was theoretically very dangerous, but whom he really completely neutralized. Um, And as for another title shot, I mean, most of the featherweight champs do their business on his side of the street. So Mm. gaining a title shot shouldn't be too difficult, but... I'm not sure I see him coming very close to beating Emmanuel Navarrete or Ray Vargas or someone like that. It, it's it's still a bit difficult for me to assess just how good Conlon is. And he seems to me like he's continuing to improve. But it feels like he's a level down from those guys to me. Yeah, and, and this fight in terms of Conlon's performance, it, it kind of depends what you were looking for. Mariaga mm-hmm. was the right opponent to get him back in the win column. Yep. Not the right opponent to make it two exciting fights in a row for Conlon. This was pretty ho-hum stuff, uh, just Indeed. from an entertainment perspective. It was. Um, let's look ahead. There's not a whole lot on the boxing calendar in the week ahead. Uh, Shojahan Ugrashev fights Wednesday in Detroit. On Friday, there's a minor pay-per-view from Arizona featuring Tevin Farmer versus Mickey Bay. Uh, but the only fight really worth drilling down on uh, air Saturday on ESPN. It's a 10-rounder at 140 pounds. Teofimo Lopez versus Pedro Campa. It is Lopez's first... First fight in nearly nine months since he lost his undefeated record and his lightweight championship to George Cambosis in a major upset. That was nine months ago already? Good Lord. Yep. Um, and it was discovered afterward, as we talked about in the aftermath, that Teofimo fought with an esophageal tear. And uh, doctors said he was lucky to have survived. Uh, Lopez is 16-1, and one, and he moves up five pounds to face the 34-1-1 camper of Sonora, Mexico. The record looks nice, but Campus' 34 wins have come against nobody 
you've heard of. His one loss was against 11, 8 and 1 Carlos Jimenez and his one draw was against 27 and 9 Abner Lopez. Eric, what do you think about this matchmaking for Lopez's comeback fight? And, and to what extent is the shine off of Tiafimo now that he no longer has a zero on the right side of his record? So I'm generally pretty forgiving of soft matchmaking in a fighter's first bout after a loss or a long layoff. And, and this is sort of both a loss and a slightly long-ish layoff. So I fully support giving Lopez one easy one. Campa is maybe a half level easier than I would deem ideal for the audience in terms of you want someone credible enough for beating him to mean a little something and beating Campa really means absolutely nothing. And if Teofimo doesn't stop him within about six or seven rounds, that actually suggests not great things about Teofimo. Campa's a, a club fighter with a nice record. Uh, the one loss to an 11-8-1 fighter, it wasn't just a loss. It was a stoppage loss. Um, I do credit the matchmaker here on one front. Campa has a crowd-pleasing style. He comes forward. He lets his hands go. He punches to the body. He'll be aggressive. Honestly, this could be over within two rounds. Um, but it figures not to be boring for those two rounds, if that's all it lasts. As for how much the shine is off Teofimo, I mean, definitely some of it is gone because it's easy to forget already. But think back to how high on him we all were after he beat yeah. Lomachenko and became the legit lightweight champ. I mean, any list of who are going to be the biggest stars in boxing a couple of years from now. Lopez was one of the first names to roll off anyone's tongue. It's going to take several wins, wins that suggest he only lost to Cambosos because of compromised health yeah. to get back to that place. I don't know. This is when we start to find out, um, not against Campa, but you know, the next fight or two yeah. that he has against elite guys. We'll find out if he's going to be like Adrian Broner, Zab Judah, Victor mm -hmm. Ortiz, guys who had eye-popping talent, looked amazing on the way up, and peaked around age 22 or 23. Maybe it's a little unfair to lump Zab in there, since he did go on another run a few years later and won the lineal welterweight title. But um, Teofimo, look, he's, he's a dynamic fighter, a dynamic personality. I'm excited to see him in action again, even against Kampa. But to me, no doubt, some of the shine is off until he convinces me the Cambosos fight was an aberration. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there are some mild reasons for concern about Lopez's career going forward. Um, not necessarily that he's going to fall off a cliff, but whether he's going to meet his potential. Um, you know, the, the teams choosing not to pay Joey Gamache to be in their corner for the Cambosis fight really came back to bite them in the ass. I think he offered a lot that having Teofimo Sr. as your head trainer just doesn't um, mm. and I think long term they're gonna have to do something there I think that's a weak part um, you know the whole issue of dads as trainers is always a difficult one anyway and you know seniors as I think I've mentioned before uh, I, I think he's, he's so convinced of his son's brilliance you wonder if he can be the voice that junior needs there in that corner right. um, you know I think that's something they are going to have to address but in the short term yeah, we shouldn't bury boxes when they pick up a loss. I mean, un being undefeated doesn't mean squat. Um, Mayweather and Marciano went undefeated, but so did Terry Marsh, for God's sake, and, and who can even remember him? So, um, and as you mentioned, Lopez went into that last fight not just with Camp in a, a wee bit of disarray, but with a truly significant illness. So he yeah. does have that going for him, doesn't he, more than if he didn't have that and he'd just lost a you know, Cambosis and was blaming it on camp issues. So... And I, I, I'm, I believe that actually 135 was proving a problem for him. He, he's a pretty yeah. solid lad. So, you know, with that fixed, 
with him being at 140, I'm hopeful that we'll start to see the old Tiafimo again, and, and he should splatter Kampa. But right. yeah, long term, I, I definitely want to see what they're going to do with the whole corner situation and the training situation and, and how they're going to organize that team. All right. Uh, we are joined now by someone who is a first time guest on the podcast, but his work's almost certainly familiar to all of you, uh, either in Sports Illustrated or before that, the New York Times. Yes, he's one of them actual real fancy writers. Um, if you haven't read his words, you've probably heard them uh, as he scripts the all access shows that air in the build up to Showtime pay-per-views. Greg Bishop, thanks so much for joining us here on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. I uh, feel it's, it's a true honor to make my first appearance here. Well, we're uh, we're excited to have you on and uh, pick your brain about all sorts of topics. And, you know, boxing is just one of the sports you've covered for SI and the New York Times. I'm curious, A, how you got started covering boxing. Were, were you a fan and asked to cover it, or did an editor point you in that direction? And B, how does it compare to the other sports you cover in terms of the access, the athletes themselves, the live events? How does covering boxing stack up? But, but, but first, just back to the first part, how did you get roped into covering this ridiculous sport? Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, I was a fight fan growing up. Uh, no one in my family really loved it, but there was a neighbor I had down the street named Shane, uh, whose dad was really into it. We watched I'm Dating Myself here, a lot of Tyson pay-per-views. And then that led to, um, you know, really a, a lifelong kind of interest in the sport. Uh, when I was at the New York Times, one of the things I loved the most about it was it was like a point of the map and go kind of place. You say like, I'm into that story. I want to go there. Mm -hmm. And the way I got into boxing is I was interested in Manny Pacquiao. And so this is 2009. I'd been at the Times for three years. I reached out to the best flip phone man in the business, Fred <laughs> And uh, next thing I knew, like three weeks later, Manny, Freddie, uh, the whole gang came to the New York Times offices. I believe Michael Kahn's was even there, which was pretty interesting in hindsight, given everything that happened. And uh, I became interested, you know, like I, I believe that Fred got me into a couple fights uh, before I started writing about him. You know, I was at Madison Square Garden for Cotto Clotty, which was an awesome atmosphere. I remember it being packed. I remember them giving out cans of Tecate on the way out, if I recall correctly. And I went to Los Angeles to write my first story on Freddie uh, Roach and Manny Pacquiao and this is still one of the craziest experiences I've ever had. Fred Sternberg and I uh, went to Manny's apartment. You know, he had the house, but he also had the apartment where a lot of the guys hung out. And we waited in that living room for six and a half hours. <laughs> he was upstairs. Allegedly, he was going to talk to me. And I was just fascinated by the machinations around him. You know, there was a group of guys huddled around. And I wrote all this in the Times. They were huddled around, like talking about what kind of Gatorade to get them. It was like orange, no purple. Well, we should do blue. And then, um, you know, other guys like fixing the dartboard. So it's like perfectly lined up. And then somebody else was like heating up the food. And it just struck me as like this whole ecosystem. And finally, I turned to Fred Sternberg and said, I'm just going to write about what I saw today. Like, it was, you know, and, I, and then I talked to a couple of folks, was able to ascertain that. He let the person who he was happiest with at the time, this is Manny Pacquiao, not Fred Sternberg, sleep at the foot of his bed, even when Jinky was staying in there. Oh. Uh, then I got into a lot of the Michael Kahn's drama that was right around the Kodo fight, if I recall correctly. And I was just like, this world is amazing. 
And so to answer your second question, like people ask me all the time, like what sports do you like to cover? And I've, you know, I've covered almost every major sporting event you could cover. I've done every tennis grand slam. I covered the Tour de France one year for the times I've covered five or six Olympics, you know, almost 20 Super Bowls, a bunch of final fours. Uh, I've been all over the world covering sports and I always tell people there is nothing in sports like a big fight. There's a reason that they still make all kinds of money. Like for my money, the best 30 seconds in sports in my career is Pacquiao coming down to the ring while Thunderstruck is going. I mean, nothing. I remember even for his last fight, I was sitting next to Dan Raphael and he just looked at me and he says, man, like there's nothing like this. And that's always how I felt. I mean, the access is incredible. I like to describe it to young writers. Like if you wanted to stay at a boxer's house, they'd probably just give you a blanket and some jammies, you know? And <laughs> I spend most of my day like begging Tom Brady for 10 minutes or, you know, like really trying to do, you know, a sport where the access is incredibly limited and boxing almost feels like a reprieve from the general wow. pitching that I do. You know, I pitch, 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 pitch all day long. And then I go to somebody at boxing and said, I want to do this. And they say, can you come tomorrow? And uh, I think that's why I always keep my hand in it. There's no shortage of characters, no shortage of compelling storylines. Fighting in and of itself, I think, is incredibly interesting. And, you know, when I fell in love with covering it, I fell hard. And even now, I don't, I don't think they necessarily want me to write boxing at SI, but I'll never give it up. They'll have to pry it from my cold, dead hands. You know? <laughs> nice. But but to be clear, uh, Tom and Giselle also allow one of Tom's friends to sleep at the foot of the bed most nights, right? That's that's a common thing with all superstar athletes. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out who would who would be able to fit there. You know, maybe Gronk. He'd be a good. <laughs> Um, as I mentioned you know, at the top, one of the things you do also is you write the, uh, the all access uh, shows. And I'm really curious about what that process is like. Like I wouldn't even know how to get started on, on writing something like that. And I'm wondering if, particularly with the first show of, of a series, you know, if you say do a two-parter, do you guys, are you part of like planning out, okay, these are the kind of storylines that we want to try to get. You know, the team goes out, comes back with footage the producer asks the questions to try to fit into that and then you work around it or how does it work I'm just very curious yeah my role there has changed over time so I could kind of take you through the evolution if you think it'd be helpful um you know the first time I heard about this was when Mark Kriegel was going to ESPN and they had an opening and Matt Matt Donovan on the Showtime PR team actually reached out to me he does a better job apparently than my agents who I hope are <laughs> Uh, no, I'm kidding. But, uh, you know, he said, hey, like they're interested in another writer. Do you think you could do this? And my initial reaction was absolutely not. You know, <laughs> like, I, how do you write a TV script? Like I write right. 4,000 word stories. I'm consistently being told that I write too long. And um, it just seemed very daunting. But the world that I found is just like such a fascinating place. I mean, uh, Josh Glazer is the executive producer of All Access. Uh, that is the most patient man on the face of the earth. He taught me how to write television. He taught me how to think in imagery. You know, when I'm writing my stories, I'm able to put my own transitions in. I'm able to shape them and, and construct them how I want. When I write for TV, I'm essentially, other than the, what we call the tease, which is the beginning of the show and the close, which is the end, you know, I'm mostly writing bridges. You know, you want to take the viewer from one image to the next image in a way that's not distracting and actually moves them through. 
And, you know, you might have nine lines at the opening of a show to tell the whole story. Mm. That means nine times when you take a breath. It's not even a full sentence. So every time you stop to breathe, that's a line. And trust me, Barry Pepper is very particular about how many words he wants before he breathes. And so, you know, it, it actually has been really interesting to try to do it because at first I was just sort of writing and I would do draft after draft and they wouldn't like it. And then, you know, I became a lot more involved in like the actual, you know, shaping of the arc. And so now I send these like opuses after every fight or before, you know, the sort of like, this is how I see the story arc. You know, this is how I would do it if I were writing a magazine story. These are the themes that I think would be interesting. These are some of the questions that I'd ask. And then we have crews out in the field that just do amazing work, you know, and they, they go out and they get all these scenes and then they bring them back. And then, you know, Josh is sort of the air traffic controller who puts it all together. You know, I usually come in kind of toward the end there because my words are like the last thing usually that go down. And from there, we somehow make a television show. And, you know, being able to weigh in on the show itself, being able to weigh in on the storylines has been really cool. I've, I've added producer to my writer title on it. And, mm. you know, I, I, I'm not blowing smoke here. This is going to sound ridiculous, but I've been on the front page of the New York Times and I've been on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And, and the first time I saw my name roll on those credits, <laughs> like, you know, the narcissist in me, which can be strong. <laughs> I was like, that is really cool, you know, like totally different, total different muscle flex. And to watch how they put it together, especially on an epilogue, like, you know, the fight happened Saturday. We're we're showing a show to the executives by Tuesday or Wednesday. Wow. And it's just incredible the speed at, with which they do that, because for every minute of the show, there's hundreds of hours of footage and long interviews and sparring after sparring after sparring and it's been really fascinating to watch how they do that, how they make it. I'm curious, has it, you know, you were talking about how when you're writing print, you, you're told you, you write too long. I, I have the same curse. And I'm curious about whether doing this, are you able to bring anything that you learn from doing this back to your other writing? Does it help you tighten things up a little bit, convey scenes more rapidly? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. It's a great question because... To me, it's really helped me at the beginning and end of sections, right? So I always would spend a ton of time on my lead. I think I'm like most writers, like you, you spend 80% of your time on the first 200 words and then you're just like, oh, I got to get this done. And you just like dash it out, you know? Um, I really try hard now when I'm doing the show and segments to have a strong opening line and sort of a strong coming out line. Mm-hmm. You also know that you need to really land at the end of a tease or at the end of a close in the way that like I've it's really improved my ability to do that in a magazine story I would argue I don't actually know if that's true my editors might have to tell you if I'm lying or not but you know I feel like the beginning and ending of my sections now and say like I'm working on Tyron Matthew piece right now for instance like they should feel a little bit more sceney you know like it really allowed me to lean into the scene that I can create because I see how Josh and you know people like Andrew Romero and Tim um Tim Mullen and Jackie Decker like they just do these incredible scenes that just really like land with this like force you know and I want every section in the magazine story to feel like Tim Mullen cut it up you know like that, that you just you you have this kind of imagery that makes the words less relevant like the picture is what stands out in your head and it's been really interesting to me to flex different muscles you know I ghostwrite some books I did Jim Gray's Laurent Duvernay Tardif's got a couple more I'm working on it and 
this to me is the best thing in terms of improving as a writer, because it's the thing that I do the worst. You know, I need to focus, 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 tighten, tighten, tighten. And so now when I write, say, a sketch for the opening of one of the shows, I'll give them like five versions of the same thing. Each one's progressively shorter. Because mm. I know the first time I'm going through it all in my head, it's going to be way too long. There's no way they'll be able to use that much. And you just winnow, 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 cut, cut, cut. And eventually, usually something comes out of it that's not terrible. So I also have to ask, like you've been doing this a fair few years now, any episodes that you look back on or scenes within episodes that either like kind of make you laugh or you look back on fondly? Yeah, absolutely. Are we allowed to swear on here? That, that be- oh, it shows yes, on. Sure. Yep. Uh, it's mandatory, actually. The, the, <laughs> one of the most memorable ones I did was the first one. The first one I worked on was Wilder Fury 1. And there's this amazing scene of Deontay Wilder, you know, on the eve of the fight. And you could just see how much it mean to him then. You know, this was before everything that happened. And a lot has happened, right? I'm sure you've covered all of it on your show. And he's sitting with his fiance, I believe, at the time. And, you know, he was crying in the back. And you just see this emotion of, like, these are these guys might be a gladiator. He might hit harder than any human on planet Earth. But, like, there's this want to do well and not knowing if you can. And I just thought that it was very resonant, you know. I thought that that was a – all three of those episodes were really powerful. Um, my favorite line I ever got on TV was the recent one. It was uh, Tank Davis versus Rolly Romero. And I thought for sure they were going to cut this one. But, you know, we had talked about a million different ways to do the show. And I said essentially, like, we need to sort of forget the normal format here. We should do – this is the oldest reason that people fight. You know, like some guy says something to some other caveman, and then he says, come outside, and then there's clubs and, and fists. And, like, this is why fighting was invented. <laughs> Like some guys, and so, you know, you kind of write these things and I'll kind of push it to see how far I can go, if I can be funny, if I can do something different. And in that instance, I used the line, shut that motherfucker up was the uh, end of it. And I thought for sure they'd cut it. I thought for sure the talent might have an issue with it. (laughs) Uh, I thought maybe Rolly Romero might beat me up if I saw him in the street, but um no, it was great. And Barry read it in like that Barry voice. Maybe we can cut it in. But, you know, I mean, it was like, I get, I get goosebumps because I'm childish like that. I thought it was a fun line, you know. <laughs> um, but I would say that, like, I learned a level of depth to these guys in every episode. Like, I find Jermel Charlo incredibly fascinating. You know, it's not a guy I've written about for Sports Illustrated. But, you know, you can, you can just sort of see, like, the, what's churning inside of them. I believe we started one episode, Jermel Charlo Churns, you know, and it was like, mm-hmm. you just kind of see it, you know, like that, that sort of angst and drive and, you know, like confidence mixed with uncertainty that, like, you can see in the ring. You saw against Castano in, in his last fight. And, you know, I just think that's one of the cool things about these shows. I watched 24-7 when I was, you know, younger. I... I'm uh, obviously like a huge fan of Aaron Cohen's who's like the king of this kind of work. Yep. I've never met him, but I like to describe myself as a poor man's Aaron Cohen. <laughs> uh, and I just, um, I think the form is really cool. And I think that's why it resonated. And I think that's why you've seen so many imitations of it, you know, over the years. No. Yeah. And in terms of the, the economy of words that you strive for, it's uh, such the polar opposite of uh being a podcaster where uh, <laughs> economy of words is uh, we, we just blather and blather and whatever comes out, comes out. Um, but uh, your most recent all access writing was unfortunately becoming irrelevant just as it was seeing the light of day. Um, 
What was that like for you hearing that the Paul Rockman fight was off just as the All Access episode that you surely worked hard on was airing for the first time? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was tough in part because I thought this, these guys were compelling. You know, the way we framed the episode, and to be honest, that day, I didn't know if it would air. You know, I thought mm. they might just yank it. But Serrano's featured in it as well, if people haven't seen it. And, you know, I, I kind of liked how that show came together. It was not an easy one to do, right? But the way we framed it was like, Paul is famous, Rachman is a boxer, and each guy wants what the other person has. You know, Paul wants boxing credibility. Rachman wants to live up to his father's name. And you can't do that without followers and fame. And, you know, I thought we had good stuff on uh, Jake Paul's girlfriend and like their relationship and making him seem like a borderline human, which I thought was difficult. And, you know, I just, uh, I thought it was really compelling. So I was looking forward to the epilogue. That's for a few reasons. The honest one is same pay, very few words. Let's just start with that. I'm not going <laughs> to uh, two, I love how they cut the fights up. I think that they, you know, Andrew Romero does a lot of those. He's just an in incredibly brilliant guy. I love the way his brain works. Uh, he can make music seem like words, you know, to like make a fight feel in the rhythm. I'm thinking like the one we did on Errol Spence or Canelo when he, when he won the Undisputed. Um, you know, they generally tend to be really vivid. And then the last thing is I think Paul, the access would have been great. You know, that, that can be a challenge sometimes in these is to get enough footage with filming with certain guys. Some are easier than others. I don't fortunately have to deal with that uh, the way I would for a Sports Illustrated story. But I feel like that epilogue had a chance to be kind of cool. And you really don't, I don't really know what would have happened. Like I kind of think Rockman would have won, but you know, I mean, I don't think it was like outside the realm that Jake could have. Right. And, what we really don't know is like whether he can because we just haven't seen it. And so I felt like it had a lot of potential. And I also felt like I could have used the cash, but you know, that's his life. I kind of wondered aloud last week about whether the whole card needed to be canceled, whether they could have found, you know, a, a replacement for Rockman. And I kind of wish I could take that back, actually, because that's not how pay-per-views work. You can do that with a show box, but that's not going to happen with a pay-per-view. And especially with a guy like Jake Paul, who you got to match pretty carefully. Um, and I'm curious what you think now is, is the way ahead for him. Do you think he's likely to or should continue to try to fight pro boxers like he was trying to do or is he best served maybe staying in the lane he's been in to this point and knocking over MMA guys because his fan base doesn't really care yeah to me it kind of depends what he wants you mm -hmm. know like the way I personally look at Jake Paul is that he's and I, I'm even surprised I'm saying this but it's the truth like he, his ideas about boxing are great I mm -hmm. wrote that in an Amanda Serrano story I wrote for SI a couple months ago like he wants more equitable distribution he wants more more purse money for fighters he wants health insurance he wants 401ks like there's, there's a lot of, like if you were the commissioner of boxing I would buy it you know like right. that makes sense to me most of the things he says about the sport, I think, are things that should happen. The people advocate for it regularly, and all three of us have talked about it for a long time. Um, I think it's hard to say that he's a legitimate boxer at this point, just because we don't know. And so, matching him becomes interesting, right? Like, mm. you almost need somebody with enough of a name to carry it if you're going to bring a legitimate boxer in. To me, Hasim Rahman Jr. makes sense because of his father's name and what his father did against Lennox Lewis, you know, but he's also a boxer. So in a lot of ways that Venn diagram for me fit really well. 
Um, but I do think it would be weird if they had like put in a last minute replacement who wasn't even that big of a name who beat him, you know, like that kind of takes the whole experiment right. and makes it difficult. In some ways, I think the interest that he brings to the sport, the younger demographic that seems to be following his career, the way that he can take a card and put Amanda Serrano on it, because let's face it, she certainly has a career worthy of pay-per-view headlining. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that she's, you know, one of the best women's boxers ever. And, you know, I think that that kind of attention is great. And if it comes through fighting a 5'9 NBA point guard who's retired and half your size, like, I mean, I think it's interesting mostly. And I would, I would buy that kind of career track. Now, he said in multiple times in all access interviews that he wants to be known as a legitimate boxer. There's some steps, I think, for me to get there. And the question is, how do you do that while sustaining the interest? You know, because it's almost, I wouldn't say zero sum, but the two things don't necessarily marry. Right. You know, they're not working in tandem. And so the question is, can he become a legitimate boxer by fighting legitimate boxers without derailing the interest that he's created? And, you know, I mean, one thing we know he can do is figure things like that out. So I'm actually curious to see what's going to happen next. Well, uh, no offense to uh, to Jake Paul, but let's talk about some actual top active pro boxers. Um, everyone in boxing has an opinion on Terrence Crawford versus Errol Spence, even if maybe that opinion for some is it's dead even and I can't pick a winner. Where do you fall uh, in terms of who you favor there, if anyone? And and is that fight number one on your boxing wish list like it is for a lot of people or, or is there something else above it? No, like no. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, I mean, it. All that matters is me, so let's be selfish here. One, I think that would be an incredible fight. I think it's the best fight to be made in boxing. I think we'd do an incredible show. You know, when I when I wrote about Terrence a couple of years ago for SI, we, we did a full documentary with it. And we went, like, uh, trick-or-treating with him. We went to Walmart and bought dog food. We did, like, a run in the morning. I mean, he was just, like, the most normal guy ever. We watched his fight against Jose Benavidez Jr. at his grandma's house while she was, like, cranking Newports. And then <laughs> the Empire State Building on a chain out back. I mean, it, they called it Zeus, and I was, like, not going to go within 45 feet of it, you know, because of my fear. But I think those are two guys that are really interesting, you know. I mean, Terrence Crawford got shot in the head and drove himself to the hospital. Errol Spence survived a crash <laughs> that, like, looked at look at the car, you know. Yeah. These they also happen to be two of the best boxers in the world, and you know we've seen this sort of circly dance with a lot of different guys before, but it actually feels like they're both still in their prime to me, and so. I mean, I don't know if you guys are hearing the same things, but to me, it seems like the fight is like moving in the right direction to being yeah. really made. And not only is it the best fight in boxing, but it's two of the more compelling characters in boxing. It's two American fighters. It's two guys from uh, places where we've seen a lot of interest in the sport, whether it's, you know, um, the Midwest, you know, with Crawford, I guess I'm lumping Omaha in there or like all the things you've seen in Dallas with Jerry Jones and AT&T. And I just think... Um, these are the kind of fights that that we need to remind people that why this is such a followable endeavor. And I think it's because of everything. I like Crawford in that fight. I think he's uh, the best boxer in the world, not named Canelo Alvarez, uh, you know, uh, a year ago. Um, I think that the only thing that gives me pause is Spence's size. You know, I think he'll be bigger, he'll have a reach. And I think, you know, obviously there's, 
no shame in his game either. So like, I'm probably like a 55, 45, you could almost call me split. Wouldn't bet any money on either one of them. <laughs> and I would definitely just sit back and watch the show and hopefully uh, make one too. Right. Um, you mentioned Canelo. Uh, what do you think he's at right now? He's still the biggest star in boxing. Yeah. Um, has he passed his best or did he just pick the wrong guy in B-ball? And how do you see the Triple G trilogy working out? Yeah, you know, to me, that became a lot more fascinating because of what happened against B-ball. Like, it wasn't just a win. There wasn't a really bad scorecard. You know, it was just like a, a master class in boxing techni technical proficiency. You know, it was amazing to watch. And I think for every fighter as they go up, right, because you go up, there's more money, there's bigger attention, like everything. People just hit a level where they probably shouldn't have gone. You know, Adrian Broner is like that to me. Like, at 147, he was rough you know i thought he lost to paulie and uh but at 135 it was amazing you know like knockout after knockout after knockout and so canelo may have just reached too big like i'd buy that he fought at 147 not even you know that long ago and now he's up you know almost as high as you can go and so to me it doesn't really impact his legacy but it does make it interesting like here's a guy that like you know, was able to out strategize him and sort of push him around and, you know, really be able to create the space to land and triple G while he did not look like the fastest human being in the world in his fight in Japan recently, it certainly looked like his hands were landing with some heavy thudding shots and does fighting a larger opponent make Canelo more, more vulnerable to getting hit. You know, um, we see wacky stuff in trilogies all the time. I always tell people like, the trilogy in boxing is the best because if you're doing an NBA three-game series, it's likely to unfold similarly. Like strategy adjustments will be minor. Teams are going to rely on their best players. In boxing, they could fight three times and all three could be totally different. You know, I think uh, Marcus Pacquiao is a good example. Like third fight was kind of weird. Fourth fight was a uh, uh, Marquez knockout. You never would have thought that when you're watching round one of the first one. And right. Part of me wonders if Triple G doesn't have like the perfect opening to to hang one on him here, you know, like to really, he still seems like he has power. We don't exactly know where Canelo's at. A little bit anticlimactic after the loss. Did he get, you know, physically harmed? Like I'm, I'm talking myself into this. Now I do this a lot. You go to a fight, <laughs> you have an idea, and then you start talking yourself into the other thing and then you go to the fight and it's exactly what you thought at first, you know, but to me, it's fascinating in, in part because of the loss and for all the reasons we just said and why I think like I'd never miss a trilogy whenever they have when it's, you know, something weird's going to happen. <laughs> all right. Well, last uh, quick thing, uh, a two part question to, to end with. What's your favorite fight you've ever covered? And what's the fight your editors didn't send you to that you most wish they had? Ooh, two good ones. You know, I'd probably go Pacquiao Cotto for my favorite one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I loved going to Macau for fights. Uh, mm -hmm. Definitely loved some of the ones I saw in the garden. But that was the first one where I was like, this is truly unique, you know? I can't remember the name of the writer, but the GQ guy wrote uh, that it looked like Pacquiao was going to punch his face off, you know? And it was <laughs> like, it kind of looked like that, you know? Mm. And to me, it was sort of peak Manny. You know, hysteria yeah. was high. Distractions were high. Everything hadn't really come down yet in terms of the things he was going to deal with. He was truly on top of the world, coming off some spectacular knockouts. And Miguel fought really well, I thought. But what you saw was a master at the top, absolute peak of his game. 
And I remember thinking like every fight's going to be like that. And says, I don't know if I've seen one since, you know, but uh, I remember th- that was like an atmosphere. Like, you know, this, you felt like this is the boxing big prize fight kind of thing. And there's nothing, like I said earlier, like that in sports, which one would I wanted to go to? Ooh, that's a really good one. I'm trying to think of one they sent Chris Mannix to so I can complain. That- <laughs> I mean, Serrano Taylor looked pretty good the other yeah. day. Uh, that's yeah. one I would have liked to be in the garden for that um truly unique settings i like you know i did jim gray's book he had a lot of funny stories about like don king in mexico city like i I think somewhere like the you know uh i could you could go back in the day i mean the stories that bob aram tells about like the rumble in the jungle made it sound like the fight itself was sort of ancillary to the fun right (laughs) Right. obviously it's like you know all-time classic so yeah, I think one of the cool things about boxing is they can put it in different places. You know, going out to Macau was amazing. I loved watching Pacquiao in Cowboy Stadium. Um, I'd love to see Terrence Crawford fight in Omaha just to see the reaction. But yeah, I mean, I th- I think that, um, you know, like Mayweather Hatton, Pacquiao Hatton, like those were before my boxing days. Like to be there for one of those, I imagine, was pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's probably a good answer. Yeah. I <laughs> parachute into the ring you know yeah Yeah. hey man look it's been fantastic we've really enjoyed having you on and hopefully before the year is out we'll all be together in las vegas and we'll be talking to you about episode one of all access crawford spence how does that sound i can't wait and i think we should do an ancillary uh episode all access showtime boxing podcast all about it part of the deal it's so much less interesting than you think Uh, look, many thanks there to Greg. That was really interesting. I personally just really enjoyed, you know, getting a look behind the scenes of how he, how he works things um, yeah. with the All Access shows. But So thanks very much to Greg, and hopefully we'll have you back in the future. It is time now for the Tweet of the Week. And um, Eric, as you may be aware, uh, this weekend marks the return of the Premier League. And as you're almost certainly painfully aware, I'm a lifelong supporter of Liverpool Football Club, which, to borrow from Bret Hart, is the best team there was, the best team there is, and the best (laughs) team there ever will be. Uh, But Liverpool got off to a rocky start uh, on Saturday, uh, falling behind twice and being held to a draw by newly promoted Fulham, um, which is a real blow, even on just the first game of the season. And among those who had something to say on the matter was one Jake Paul, Hmm. who tweeted, and warning here, potty mouth alert okay fulham fucked us yes jake paul is a fan of liverpool football club i should say jake paul sage philosopher king future cruiserweight champion of the world (laughs) and already the greatest promoter on earth is a fan of liverpool football club i shall try to cover him objectively eric in the light of this knowledge but so great is his obvious brilliance that i may struggle to do so in future if you had told me three years ago that a tweet of the week would be YouTuber Jake Paul talking about <laughs> soccer, I would have been very confused as to how that made it on a boxing podcast. Um, uh, you remain my favorite Liverpool fan, Kieran. Uh, you're, uh-huh. you're ahead of Jake Paul in, in my rankings. I'm and, um And uh, again, all that I know about soccer or football, as you call it, or whatever is I've learned from Ted Lasso, uh, where the, where <laughs> one of his key teachings is to be a goldfish, which means to have a short memory. So with regard to this disappointing draw against Fulham, Kieran, be a goldfish. I shall endeavor. It's hard. It cuts, though, Eric. It cuts. Every 
every non-win. It just it just hurts that little bit. I know. <laughs> and and it and it was seven thirty a.m. The game started U.S. East Coast time, so that mm. just ruined my Saturday. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But we're recording this on a Sunday. It's a new day. Something else will come along to ruin your Sunday, I'm sure. Exactly. Not My soccer. All over or something. Right. Something like or that. Or Patrick will go rejoin his band in the middle of it. <laughs> well, follow-up documentary, at least. There you go. There's that. All right. Um, before we get to the news, let's uh, take a minute to follow up on a topic from last week. We read a mailbag question asking what our favorite boxing books were. And a few folks on Twitter had some comments and additional recommendations. Uh, Bernie Bernstein said... I read McRae's Dark Trade last year. It holds up beautifully. Another for the list, Tosh's The Devil and Sonny Liston. Uh, at Marco518 commented, three more good boxing books, Cram's Ghosts of Manila, Plimpton's Shadow Box, and Wiley's Serenity. And then in a separate tweet, he added, deep cut boxing book. I love at Enswell Jones's, that's Chris Jones's, Falling Hard. I checked it out of a library on a whim because I liked his Esquire stuff and used to read books. Uh, years later, I tweeted at him how much I liked it. He responded that it sold 900-something copies. <laughs> uh, Kieran and I can relate. Yes. Um, <laughs> and lastly, David Cushion told us, Another excellent boxing book is Four Kings by George Kimball, all about Leonard, Hearns, Hagler, and Duran. So uh, as I noted last week, I'm not a big book reader, and some of these are books I've had recommended to me before but never did anything about it. The only one I've read is Four Kings. When I was working on my Leonard Hagler oral history, I got a copy and wanted to interview George Kimball for the oral history, but he was in poor health, and he emailed back that I should just quote from the book in place of new quotes, so that's what I did. So I've read that one, and it is indeed very good. Kieran, have you read any of these recommended books? Yeah, most of them. No, actually, let me rephrase that. I have most of them. It doesn't necessarily follow <laughs> okay. that I've read most of them. Right. Um, uh, I did, just as an aside, I did get to talk to George Kimball for a story a while back once. Um, we didn't overlap ringside at all. Uh, I don't think it was for Four Kings. I actually think it was for something kind of random, like a piece on Kevin McBride or something odd hmm. like that. He was lovely. Um, I, I went into it a little bit anxious because I just thought he might be one of that generation of cranky old newspaper men, right? right. He couldn't have been more charming and nice. Um, so that, that really like elevated George Kimball for me. And of course, he's a great writer. And yes, Four Kings is one I have read. Um, and it's uh, excellent. Uh, I have Serenity and I have a horrible feeling that I have Serenity. And that's as far as my, <laughs> my and I have Serenity in the sense that I have a book called Serenity. Right. I do not have Serenity. <laughs> right. um, I did enjoy Ghosts of Manila. If you haven't read it it's um it can be a bit of a challenging read for uh some folks because it really it's essentially about the 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 personal and professional animus between muhammad ali and joe frazier and it definitely takes the joe frazier side of things and, and suggests that ali is not quite how the mythology makes him out to be um surprisingly uh i've never read shadow box even though it's i love the idea of it and 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 like george plimpton's writing uh, but i think it's also on my bookshelf i've never even heard of falling hard but i'm, I'm quite intrigued by that all right so uh we have we have various homework assignments uh, i know i won't accomplish any of mine you you're you not have... even gonna try though no i'm not even gonna try you're honest about it 
<laughs> and and I'm the, gonna act like, oh yeah, I'll get it off my shelf. I have to go read it. Today. I'm not right. gonna do that. Right, but at least yeah, you have the easy access. It's there on your shelf. None of these other than Four Kings uh, are actually on my shelf, and I've already read that one. So I mean, the next book I have to read that I just got because it only just came out on Thursday is of course Intensity by Liverpool Football Club assistant manager Pep Blinders. So that obvious, no. obviously, I have to read Karen, that first. Karen, no, we've we've exceeded the maximum amount of soccer talk on this podcast. I, I can't I can't indulge you anymore. I'll just call Jake. Okay. Yes. <laughs> you know what? If we ever do get him on the podcast, I give, grant you permission to talk a little Liverpool. How's that? Boy, thank you. That's, okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, in keeping with the slow fight week in terms of reviews and previews, it has also been kind of a slow news week. Uh, nothing really qualifies as a news main event. So we'll just do an extended news undercard and we'll split it into two halves. Stuff about fights possibly or probably coming together and stuff not about that. Uh, First up, the items on fights either happening or in the works. Jose Ramirez has withdrawn from a planned 140-pound alphabet title fight with Jose Zapata because the timing conflicts with Ramirez's wedding in October. So now the alphabet group is ordering Zapata versus Regis Progre to fill that title. Also in the 140-pound division, Jack Catterall has signed a multi-fight promotional deal with Boxer, which figures to help his chances of securing the rematch with Josh Taylor. Two heavyweight Joes, Joyce and Parker, have signed to fight each other on September 24th at the AO Arena in Manchester, England. And the next Showbox date and full fight card have been announced. It's September 9th at the site of the very first Showbox card, Bally's in Atlantic City, with Shenard Bunch taking on Hugo Alberto Roldan in the 140-pound main event. And among the undercard fighters is a man who fought Bunch to a draw last year, Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica. Uh, Kieran, what catches your eye among these items? I like every one of these fights and cards. Um, it's a really good-looking show box. Uh, and maybe we'll end up rekindling your love for Janelson Figueroa Boca Chica, because I know a little <laughs> bit of the bloom came off the rose after yeah. that Janard Bunch bout. Um, good for Ramirez for prioritizing the future, Mrs. Ramirez, and uh, realizing that there is more to life than being punched in the face uh, and sticking with his wedding day. He will get his chance again. Um, and meanwhile, I just freaking love Zapata Progre. I mean, I absolutely do. What a terrific fight and an opportunity for, for both guys to, to relaunch themselves right back in the top tier there. Um, I do hope uh, that Catterall gets his chance for revenge there. Um, but the fight that most stood out to me is is Parker Joyce. It's it's not necessarily the best fight to be made in the division, but it's just a real good, honest, old-fashioned two pretty skilled big guys just going in together. There's going to be a lot of heavy leather being thrown and landed there. I, I think Parker's the better boxer of the two. Um, he's lighter on his feet. He moves better. But Joyce, man, he just keeps coming, and he keeps coming, and he keeps coming, and... Win or lose, uh, our buddy Joseph Parker will need to be ready for some real hurt, I think, especially in the latter half of that contest. Yeah, um, and it's funny, when you just mentioned uh, Ramirez's, Ramirez having his priorities in order, it just reminded me of, of something I hadn't thought of in a while, that uh, I had a, a close friend getting married on September 15th, 2001, which was the same date that Hopkins Trinidad was supposed to take <laughs> place before it got delayed oh, right. because of September 11th. And I remember trading emails with Dan Raphael uh, and telling him I'm missing the Hopkins Trinidad fight because a friend of mine's getting married. And he said, come on, 
your friend is going to get married again. Hopkins Trinidad only <laughs> happened once. Now, for the record, that friend is still married to the woman he married that day. So uh, Dan's prophecy did not come true. And thanks to the delay, not that, not to try to make it sound like there was anything good coming out of 9-11, right. but thanks to the delay, I did get to go to the fight also. So there you go. Yes. <laughs> anyway. That's pretty witty for Dan. I, I like that. Uh, we, we always know where his priorities lie. Yes. Are, are yeah. Um, the other news really kind of runs the gamut. Uh, Don King. Remember him? He's back in the headlines as he's being sued by heavyweight Daniel Dubois for allegedly failing to pay Dubois for his June fight against Trevor Bryan. But King disputed that. And his attorney said in a statement that, quote, DKP has made all requisite payments, uh, unquote. Alexander Usyk has gone out of his way to make sure the people of his native Ukraine can watch his August 20th rematch with Anthony Joshua. He's been granted permission to have the fight streamed for free in Ukraine on YouTube. Um, some sad news to share as former featherweight champ Johnny Famishan of Australia died at age 77. He had a record of 47, 4 and 6 with 18 KOs and defeated the likes of Jose Legra and Fighting Harada. And lastly, kind of a strange story. Uh, Sylvester Stallone took to Instagram to vent about longtime producer Erwin Winkler, who owns the rights to Rocky Balboa and related characters, doing some sort of Drago spinoff against Sly's wishes. Uh, Eric, your reaction to these varied items? This is an interesting assortment. Uh, I'll, I'll go in the reverse order of how you introduce them. The okay. Rocky thing. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Creed 2 freaking sucked. Uh, one of oh. the most disappointing sequels I've ever seen. I don't care about Drago or his son at this point, uh, but whatever. Somebody sees dollar signs. I didn't realize how little control over the Rocky rights Stallone mm. has. Now, from a financial perspective, who cares? The, the guy has more money than he knows what to do with. I'm not going to shed a tear if he isn't profiting enough from Rocky. But in terms of intellectual property and, and control of the characters, yeah, the dude created Rocky Balboa and yeah. Apollo Creed and everyone else. He should get the final say on what happens with these characters and any Drago script that Sly doesn't sign off on ought to be framed as fan fiction. Uh, that, that's all it is. Um, that said, this inspired some amusing, angry social media use from Stallone, uh, much of which he deleted, but the internet never forgets, of course. Uh, and so I just have to read his initial post about this. Another heartbreaker. Just found this out. Once again, all caps, this pathetic, all caps, 94-year-old producer, all caps, and his moronic, useless vulture children, all caps, Charles and David, are once again picking clean the bones, all caps, of another wonderful character I created without even telling me. I apologize, all caps, to the fans, all caps. I never wanted Rocky characters to be exploited by these parasites. Um, Wait, parasites isn't all caps? No, parasites is not all caps. It's screaming to be all caps. <laughs> It okay. really should have been, but I don't know what it is with uh, 76-year-old washed white male celebs and their addiction to all caps on social media, uh, but anyway, I'm glad that this story exists because it gave us that hilarious old man yells at clouds post from Stallone. <laughs> now, I, I feel bad going that long on Stallone and then really short on Famishon, but alas, my knowledge about one is much greater than the other. R.I.P. Johnny Famishon, not quite an international boxing hall of famer, but a boxing icon, certainly in Australia. Uh, gotta applaud Usyk for pushing those free streaming rights. I stand with Ukraine and with the people there, deserving a little free entertainment at the very least. Yes. And lastly, the King thing. I don't want to weigh in too heavily on one side or the other in a legal matter where I don't have all the facts, but 
one of these people has a track record of being full of crap and the other doesn't. <laughs> so that serves as some basic guidance on where to start. Uh, but also this inspired some excellent tweets. I saw at least two people make the same observation that Don King has now been sued by fighters in six different decades. <laughs> I love it. Great stuff. And I really don't know why Don King is still promoting fights and, and opening himself up to this stuff at age 90. Uh, and he'll actually turn 91 in two weeks. Dude, retire. Uh, sit back, take it easy, spend all your time with family and sitting by the pool or whatever. And it would be in boxing's best interest also to stop having the likes of Trevor Bryan pushed into our heavyweight title fights. Uh, so there's that. All right, let's bring it home with the top five list. Uh, you challenged me to come up with my all-time top five worst premature stoppages. I gotta say, this one was both very fun to do and really tough. Uh, it was hard to pare it down to five, and then hard to put those five in order. Um, mm. Before I get started, I'll note that this list leans very modern, and that's mm. partially because of my biases, because, you know, I know fights from the last 25 years or so better, but also because... Referees didn't used to stop fights as yeah, quickly, exactly. for better or for worse. It used to be pretty rare to see a ref stop a big fight the first time a guy wobbled. Um, think of a classic fight like Foreman Lyle. There isn't a referee on the planet today who lets that go quite yeah. as long as the ref in that fight did. Um, so, you know, maybe there's an old black and white fight with a terrible premature stoppage that I didn't think of. If so, I apologize. My list skews quite modern. Um, okay, onto the list. And, you know... I had such a hard time paring it down to five that I'm doing a top six. I mean, it's still a top five, but I'm starting with my number one honorable mention. Um, okay. This is one of the worst stoppages you'll ever see, but it came in such a nothing undercard fight, an eight rounder in Mexico in 2015. I never would have known about it had it not come up in a YouTube search under the video title, worst boxing stoppage of all time. Um, on the undercard of a show headlined by Miguel Burchelt, we had junior welterweights, Aaron Herrera, who was 28-3-1, and Raul Hinojosa, who was 11-4-1. Round one, Herrera lands a punch. Hinojosa nearly goes down. Herrera follows up along the ropes. Hinojosa's punching back. They're trading. The action is excellent. And then Hinojosa puts on a clinic of head movement and defense. Hmm. He's like Wilfred Benitez in club fighter form. Of the final 15 punches thrown by Herrera, I counted one that landed. Hinojosa is dipping and ducking masterfully, and the ref panics and ruins it and waves it off. The crowd starts booing immediately. It's actually kind of comical. Um, if this had happened in a title fight, it's an easy number one. Yeah. But given the circumstances, I'm making it my number six, my top runner-up. Yeah, I'd never heard of this fight before uh you know until you advised me that, that it might be one of those you were looking at and so i went to watch it and it's so incomprehensibly bad <laughs> of a stoppage yeah that you know part the first reaction because it's boxing is to think that the fix was in but no it's just he he just panicked yep right i just think the referee just completely panicked uh i, I don't know why he wouldn't get himself in a better position to to to, to see that right you know that the basically none of those shots were landing yeah that was just shockingly bad i yeah. it's just baffling that that person should not like was he even scheduled to be the referee was he just like some paying customer who just <laughs> accidentally wandered into the referee's changing rooms or something i don't know that was just that was shockingly bad. folks you actually have to watch this yeah it's because i'm sure up. that very few of you have seen it because i you know like like eric said it's just buried on an undercard somewhere 
it's bafflingly bad. Yeah, the YouTube comments underneath are pretty interesting, most notably a few people pointing out if this ref had been Floyd Mayweather's ref, Floyd Mayweather would not be 49 and 0. <laughs> yeah, he'd be 0 and 49. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, number five. I couldn't possibly do this list without working in a Joe Kalzaki fight. Uh, it, it was a recurring theme with him. Those those British refs just wanted to stop his fights at the first almost reasonable yeah. opportunity. There's one uh, against a prospect in or against a, a journeyman in 1994 when Joe was just a prospect. Um, there was the fight against Omar Sheikah that was stopped just as Sheikah landed a right hand on Calzaghe. There was the Peter Manfredo stoppage, which I once got into a semi-heated argument with Brian Dugan about. Um, but the one I hate the most <laughs> was on Showtime in 2003, Calzaghe versus Byron Mitchell in Cardiff. Dave Paris, to my eyes, ruined what was going to be the round of the year. Mm. Maybe could have gone on to be an all-time classic fight. First round, Kalzagi dominates. Nothing too crazy happens. Second round, Mitchell, a two-time ex-title holder, a big puncher who'd come from behind to score knockouts in big title fights, lands a counter right hand mid-round, and down goes Kalzagi for the first time in his career. And he's hurt for real, is still a bit wobbly when he gets up, but he hangs in there and shows some real grit. And just 10 seconds later... He drops Mitchell hard with a counter left hand. Steve Albert says a second round right out of Hollywood. That's what it was shaping up as. Now they're going at it and it's all Calzaghe. He can't miss with the left hand. Mitchell's balance isn't quite right as he gets hurt a couple of times, but he's hanging in. He's moving. He's trying to hold. He's punching back. And with 25 seconds to go in the round, Mitchell lands a right hand, loses his balance a bit after landing the punch and wobbles into the ropes. And the ref stops it with Mitchell having landed the last punch in a thrilling title fight that was far from decided. Now, I thought going into this exercise that this might be my number one, but watching it back, Mitchell's legs were definitely not right. It is a horrible stoppage, but there was a hint of a shred of a justification almost. So I'll put it at number five, but it still gets me angry because I cannot rule out the possibility that Byron Mitchell would have won this fight if the ref had let it go on. And the other thing is, there was an option available to him. When Mitchell went into the ropes, he could have called that a knockdown. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that would be the obvious thing to have done there, because you call that a knockdown, and that way, you you know, uh, Mitchell's got another eight seconds or so, maybe maybe to get his head together a little bit. You're not interrupting the flow. It's a perfectly legitimate decision to make. Again, what strikes me and, and, you know, sort of spoiler alert, because there are so many potential stoppages, you did alert me to like what was likely to be your final list. And so I went through so I could make sure that I commented on them. What struck me with quite a lot of these, and I'll see which ones you end up with in your top five, is an awful lot of these are very early in the fight. Um, Like you mentioned that, like the the Hinojosa uh, Herrera one was like the first round. This is in the second. It's really interesting. Like sometimes you can justify an early stoppage with, oh, he's been taking a beating for eight rounds or or whatever. They were out in the feet. But this fight was getting warmed up, man. It <laughs> yep. was, uh, yeah, just just a very, very odd. I don't know whether sometimes referees just get caught up in it and panic. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Uh, my number four worst stoppage was a weird one. Uh, 2010, then up and coming Lucas Matisse versus starting to fade Vivian Harris in Mexico City. They get to round four. Matisse's right eye is fairly swollen, but otherwise he's doing well. Uh, it's a competitive fight. About 20 seconds to go in the fourth round. Matisse lands a nice left hand to the body. Harris freezes and Matisse lands a clean right to the jaw. There is zero evidence that Harris is even the slightest bit hurt. He doesn't wobble. He doesn't really have time to wobble because the ref steps right in and removes his mouthpiece 
before he even has had a chance to complain, uh, Harris released a statement afterward calling for an immediate rematch, saying he wasn't hurt at all. He said, quote, this is boxing. Fighters hit and get hit back. And while I fully understand that the referee's job is to protect the fighters, this stoppage was a disgrace. Matisse himself admitted after the fight that he thought the stoppage was premature. Again, I want to emphasize this was not a controversial call. It was straight up the wrong call. All you need to do is watch the fight and see for yourself. End quote. Indeed. I suggest to the listeners, go ahead and watch it for yourself. The version on YouTube isn't great. It's grainy, um, but still worth watching just for the absurdity of it. Like the rest of my list, I could see a case for putting this at number one. I I really struggled with the order. Again, I'm putting this at number four. I've heard of one-punch knockouts, but not a one-punch referee stoppage before, which is essentially what this was. I mean, yeah, the two guys were going back and forth. It was a good fight mm-hmm. up until that point. Harris had started pretty well. Matisse was clearly the guy who was coming on. But, yeah, and that was one of the things that was really strange about it. It wasn't just that he stepped in and stopped it. It's like, what, what the hell are you doing? Oh, right, you're trying to take his mouthpiece out. Why are you doing that? What's going on? It was yeah. it was just the referee himself. I don't know what was going on there. Again, a panic move, I think. Yeah, it it almost reminded me of in amateur boxing, giving an eight count when just a good, clean flush punch lands. Sometimes you see that a a guy lands a good, clean punch and the referee will, because it's amateur boxing, give an eight count, um, depending on the rules that you sometimes see that in the amateurs. This was that kind of thing. One good punch landed, but wasn't even an eight count. Not that he had the necessarily the option to do that, but step in and and stop the fight because a punch landed. I don't know. Just bizarre. Yeah, so he hadn't been briefed on the rules of boxing, I think, perhaps before. I guess not. Um, Okay, number three. I go back to the well of deeply unimportant fights, but the stoppage here was so weird and utterly indefensible and unimaginably premature that I'm putting this all the way up at number three. It's a 2012 fight between fairly faded former cruiserweight belt holder Enzo Macaronelli and journeyman Oval McKenzie. The ref is Ian John Lewis. We're in the second round. A lot of the action is with Macaronelli's back up against the ropes. Some good exchanges, and then Enzo is covering up along the ropes, as he's been doing. McKenzie fires four punches in combination. They landed fine. The ref jumps in, and it's weird. He's now separated the fighters when there wasn't really cause to separate. The ropes aren't holding Macaronelli up, so you can't call a knockdown. So he awkwardly stares at Macaronelli for a beat, never quite waves the fight off. He just sort of puts his hands on Macaronelli's face as he's, I guess, informing him that he stopped the fight. And Macaronelli can't believe it. There was some talk at the time that, well, Enzo was damaged goods. He's been knocked out a few times. The ref was being extra cautious with him. We said this when they prematurely stopped that horrible Richard Torres Jr. mismatch a few weeks ago. If the fight is that dangerous, then don't allow the fight to happen. You sanctioned it. They're in the ring. Let it play out to its conclusion. This was an egregious stoppage, but even more so, this was a strange stoppage. Ian John Lewis looked particularly incompetent as he bungled this one. Yeah, plus if if Macronelli was so shot, you know, how come he came back and stopped McKenzie in the rematch? Right. Um, yeah, that, and, and there's, again, a little bit of a theme here. A, again, very early stoppage. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, just weird behavior. But like in the same way as the, as the ref was like taking Vivian Harris's mouthpiece out of his mouth, there was this strange thing where Ian John Lewis looked like he was kind of looking deep into Enzo's eyes for a little bit, like... Maybe there was something personal he wanted to share with him. And then you realize that, <laughs> no, he was stopping it. And um, 
I don't know also if you you watched like they did a post-fight interview and just immediately post-fight, Macronelli was saying that the ref had already apologized to him. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's true or, or, or not. But it, again, I mean, you know, Lewis is pretty experienced. He's a pretty, you know, a big time uh, referee in the in the UK. So I don't know. I guess we can all have bad days at the office. But it was odd. And again, another theme. It was a case of Macronelli slipping a few punches up against the ropes. Yeah. So we've got a theme of early stoppages, <laughs> referees exhibiting aberrant behavior while making the stoppages. And guys with their backs up against the rope who aren't necessarily getting hit clean. So, yeah, a little, little bit of a theme developing here. All right. Well, well, this next one certainly fits that theme. Number two, uh, we just talked about this one two weeks ago when a fellow by the name of Hasim Rahman was on our <laughs> podcast. It's his 1998 fight with David Tua. And as I told Rock, I'm still pissed about this. And he is, too. Um, he's boxing magnificently, way ahead of Tua on points through eight rounds, just jabbing him silly. And this is an important heavyweight title eliminator. The winner gets a shot at Lennox Lewis. In round nine, Tua lands a classic Tua left hook at least a full second after the bell to end the round. The bell had undoubtedly rung a fraction of a second before he launched the punch. It was an accidental foul, I think, but a foul just the same. Rachman was hurt. He sagged into the ropes. Referee Telus Asimenios, this is not just hindsight. I was thinking in the moment as I watched it unfold, well, he's got to give him five minutes to recover. Mm. He doesn't. No point penalty, no recovery time. They just started the 10th round a minute later. And Tua comes out firing and pins Rockman on the ropes. He's landing some punches, but he's missing more than he's landing. Rock is slipping, ducking, taking some shots, but just trying to ride it out and never gets a chance. The ref stops it after Tua had missed seven of his final eight punches. And while I do not condone shoving a referee... If you do shove a referee immediately after he stops a fight, it's a pretty good sign that you weren't out on your feet. Um, one cool thing, they did let Larry Merchant interview Asimenios afterward. I, I was just complaining about the lack of ref interviews last week. At least we got to see that. But anyway, add it all up. The after-the-bell punch, no recovery time, a horrible stoppage. Rachman was correct when he said immediately after the fight, I'm 29 wins with one robbery. Yeah. I mean, he got hosed twice. Yep. <laughs> I mean, he he really did. And it all stemmed from that late punch. And like you said, it was accidental. Tua was in the middle of throwing a bunch of punches. And, and that, that was, you know, it was pretty much peak Tua then. Mm-hmm. And and that, that's what he did. But yeah, that punch landed clean. He was after the bell. He absolutely should have gotten the time to recover. And he was doing the best he could to recover in his own way. Yeah, he got, he got hosed twice in that fight. And yeah. Uh, I understand why all this time later, he (laughs) still got pretty animated when you talk to him about it. Yep. All right. My number one. Once again, we find ourselves in Britain. A lot of questionable refereeing there. Uh, (laughs) November of 2013, MEN Arena, huge domestic showdown between Carl Frotch and George Groves. The unbeaten underdog Groves is fighting the fight of his life. He's built a lead, albeit a close one, on all three cards. A minute into the ninth round, Frotch hurts Groves with a right hand. He's clearly buzzed, looking to hold, and he does hold. Then Frotch lands a good right to the chin along the ropes, and Groves punches back. They're exchanging punches. Groves, Frotch, Groves, Frotch. I'm not sure any of it quite landed, but they're letting them Mm -hmm. fly, and Howard Foster stops it. And Groves is in disbelief. The broadcasters are in disbelief. The crowd immediately boos. This one kind of has it all as premature stoppages go. Um, It's a lot like one of my top honorable mentions coming up, the the Tyson-Ruddock fight, in that it was a competitive fight stopped in the mid-rounds just as one guy wobbles the other. But this was a lot worse because that 
was a Mike Tyson power punch and right. it snapped Ruddock's head back for a moment. So Richard Steele's instinct to stop it was understandable, even if it was a lousy stoppage. This one, I don't even get the instinct. Foster panicked. He, he screwed up. He called a halt to a fight that hadn't been decided in favor of the guy who was behind on points. And maybe it ends the same a few seconds later or a round later or what have you. Or maybe he kind of derailed George Groves' career. We'll never know. Um, mm-hmm. So this is my number one. Although, depending on my mood, again, I think right. I'm going to put my top five in just about any order. Pure speculation here. But it might just be coincidence that we've got, what, three out of our five are from the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a period... I think after, uh, remember the Chris Eubank-Michael Watson rematch? Right. Um, where, you know, Watson got stopped very late and, you know, and then obviously had some real health problems. There was for a long time in the UK ring sort of like an overcorrective there. Yeah. In, and, and I wonder if some of these are the lingering effects. It might just be bad refereeing. It might just be just coincidence that these are the fights that happen to come up. But right. I wonder if that's an element of it there. But, yeah, I was... um. I was in Macau when this fight happened. I remember, so it's like very early in the morning when I was okay. uh, w- watching this fight. And I just remember, <clears throat> and I, I go, when I went down to ringside afterwards, Carl Moretti, who obviously was busy with everything, said, hey, what happened with that fight? I heard it's a bad stoppage. And I just went off to him. I just <laughs> remember saying, I just, I was shocked watching it um, yeah. for all the reasons that you, that you laid out. And obviously, you know, they had a huge rematch where they both made a ton of money and, and Froch left absolutely no doubt whatsoever. Yes. Um, but yeah, this was, I mean, Froch was coming on, he'd hurt gross, but he was wobbly himself. He was tired. They were both tired. And there were still several rounds still to go in this. I, I feel this fight could have gone uh, either way, even if you would have fancied Froch probably to wind up the winner. Right. But yeah. Again, given how much is at stake, and I think yes. that's the big difference here. Like the worst stoppage of them all was, uh, I think, unquestionably the 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 Inahosa Herrera one. That's baffling. <laughs> but like you said, all these others had so much at stake. You've got to let these guys. I mean, I'm much more inclined to let a, to, to stop a fight early than you are. But God, these guys, this is it for a lot of these these guys. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to give them the chance. They're there to get hit. That's their job. Um, yeah, this was a this was not a good one. No. Uh, all right. So my honorable mentions, I already mentioned Tyson Ruddick. No issues with someone putting that in their top five. It was mm-hmm. awful and a major heavyweight fight. I don't have Richard Steele's more infamous and more controversial stoppage in my top five either. Uh, Chavez Taylor. I know a lot of people would rank that number one. I don't because more so than anything on my list, I get why it was stopped. Um, it was incorrect in my view. It was a bad stoppage, but Meldrick Taylor was basically out of it at that point, had taken a ton of punishment, swallowed a lot of blood. The referee is not supposed to care how much time is on the clock. If he sees a fighter he thinks can't defend himself, he's supposed to stop it. Again, I think it was a bad, incorrect stoppage, but I get what Steele was thinking, at least, so it doesn't quite make my top five. Um, The Russell Bartellamy fight that inspired this assignment, honestly, maybe it belongs in the top five, but... I wanted to give it some more time to sit with me. If I put yeah. it in, it could have been recency bias at work. So I'm sort of bending over backward the other way. Um, another Showtime fight, uh, Antoine Eccles, Charles Brewer. I had oh, forgotten yes. about this fight, um, but it was really something. Brewer dropped Eccles three times in the second round. Then in the third, Eccles dropped Brewer once and the ref stopped it with Brewer then hurt along the ropes, and people were pissed because they felt the ref didn't give Brewer the same opportunity he gave Eccles. 
to me, slightly bad stoppage, but Brewer was pretty shaken up. Um, a couple of stoppages that don't make my top five because the outcome was in zero doubt, but they did clearly come too soon. Uh, Canelo Alvarez versus Alfonso Gomez and Roy Jones versus Murky Sosa. And one that's worth mentioning, it's not even in my honorable mention, but I want to call attention to it because I hated it so much in the moment. Costa Zoo and Zab Judah. I hated that Jay Nady stopped counting at four when Zab mm. fell back down rather than seeing what was happening at eight, nine, and 10. And Zab did indeed look clear-eyed two seconds after the fight was stopped. Plus it was the end of the round. It doesn't quite make my cut, but I do think Nady mishandled it. And I feel like we should have seen a round three in that fight. Interesting. I mean, I, I get what Jay was doing. I mean, I when you've got somebody who's flopping around like that, I totally get it, especially if he gets up once, staggers and, and, and goes down. And mm -hmm. that's a tough in the moment kind of call. And and I don't know that I would have done much differently, but I hear what you're saying there exactly. And and perhaps, you know, with, with hindsight, having seen that happen once, a referee might be more inclined to let it unfold and see if he could get his legs back under him. But, right. um, and you know, I totally agree with you on uh, uh, Chavez Taylor, actually. It's like it was a bad stoppage in the context of how much time was, was remaining. Right. In terms of the state of Meldrick Taylor, it wasn't a bad stoppage, right? It was If there were more than whatever it was, three, four seconds, I forget, um, remain, remaining in the fight, no one would have anything about it. But it's not, I, yes, I know this was during a period where you had the flashing lights in the ring corner and whatnot, but it's not the referee's job to be a timekeeper. And I, I kind of get that. And not that I'm trying, I'm, I'm here going to bat for Richard Steele or anything, but I hate the Tyson Ruddick one least, I think, okay. because yes, it was a premature stoppage, but you touched on it. It was Mike Tyson and Razor's head was doing the full bobblehead thing right after <laughs> right, that. Right. And not the, although this happened after Richard Steeler stepped in, his right hand got caught behind the ropes and he wouldn't have been able to bring it up to defend himself from a next Mike Tyson hook. So I kind of think that fight was going to end within the next 15, 20 seconds. Um, I, I get that it was premature because it felt unsatisfying. Um, and again, Razor got a rematch out of it, but that's the one I hate the least out of these. Yeah, I, I can see that case. And, um, Certainly its proximity to Chavez Taylor with Richard Steele again yeah. at the center of it. In a King promotion. They, again. Yeah. And they just, so they just sort of built on each other that, oh, Richard Steele is the referee who doesn't know when to stop a fight. Each of, each of these on their own, there was some justification for, for why he stopped the fights. Yeah, indeed. So I'm impressed that actually you were able to go through the history of boxing and only come out with in the end like eight or nine examples of stoppages that you hate. I, I, I thought, I thought I, we were in for a two-hour segment. Yeah, I could have kept going, but you know, uh, there's only so much of us that the podcast listeners should be subjected to. I wanted to limit it somewhat. This is going to be like almost an hour and a half podcast. I, I think I think I did plenty. Yeah, I think we exceeded our limit of what, what fans want to listen to about 215 episodes ago, but there you go. Here we are. Wait a minute. This is episode 216. I think I see what you're trying to say. There you go. All right. Well, that will, you'll be pleased to know, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with previews of both a Showtime Championship Boxing triple header and the Alexander Usyk-Anthony Joshua rematch. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe. <laughs>